Democracy, Bridging Facts and Norms. So I'm Joe Cairns. I'm a professor of political science at the University of Toronto. So how did I become a political theorist? What was my path? It, it was a curious path. I, I never studied political science when I was an undergraduate. I was studying philosophy and theology and uh, decided to go on to graduate work in theology and religious studies. I had been raised as a traditional Catholic, and this was back in the 1960s. This was in the wake of Vatican II, so they said you should go study at Yale. This was part of the ecumenist movement, and so because uh, Yale was a Protestant divinity school. And so I went there to study, and uh, after about uh, three uh, years, in the course of the three years of the PhD program there, I decided I did not believe in God anymore, and so I didn't want to do, although lots of people study theology who are not believers, but that wasn't what I wanted to do. So then I cast about for something else to do, and it's one of the ironies. In another time, I might have just taken a year off to try to figure out, but it, this was the late 60s, and if I had left school, I would be drafted. It was the time of the Vietnam War, and so then I thought I would either have to go to jail or to Canada. And I said, the irony here, of course, since I've been in Canada for 30 years, but I thought I didn't want either of these things. So I, I found another PhD program, and I really roamed around, and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I knew that I was interested in moral and political issues, but I didn't know quite how I wanted to think about those or approach those. I looked in philosophy, I looked at law, I looked in history, a, a variety of approaches. And I just sort of stumbled into political science. And it was an accident of the person who happened to be the director of graduate studies at the time was also a political theorist. And he said, well, we don't have any funding. And I had independent funding from a foundation. And so I said, well, I don't need that. He said, fine. I had good grades. I said, fine, come do political. So that's how I became a political theorist. It was really one of these odd accidents. But it has shaped my attitude towards political science and political theory because I'm not very much persuaded about the importance of discipline. And you have to come through a certain path and you have to think about questions in a certain kind of way. So then uh, I came without any particular agenda or any particular set of concerns apart from the general political concerns that people had at the time of kind of social transformation. And I was attracted with these visions of an alternative. Those were the days when the question was not whether or not you were progressive, but how progressive, you know, kind of what was the, how radical you could be, and being more radical was better. But, but I always was drawn to thinking about, yes, I agreed with the radical critiques, but always asked the question, what's the alternative? And, how, and if you want to change, well, what are you going to put in its place, and how is that going to work, and might that have some downsides, and to, th to think about the way in which things work in practice. And, and I stumbled into a course uh, taught by a guy by, uh, named Charles Lindblom, who was a, originally an economist, had moved into political science, and he talked about markets and their virtues and limitations. And uh, I found that quite illuminating. And I, I wrote a paper for that course, a paper about Cuba, and, and I said in a footnote, well, they, they, their problem was that they sh should have used markets. Uh, they were all committed to moral incentives, and the problems with the moral incentives were that they couldn't motivate people, it's that they had poor organization. They had supplies rotting on docks, and they, they didn't know how to organize the productive activities in ways that were efficient. It wasn't a problem of people's willingness to work or uh, anything like that. It was really... So the challenge was to separate out the kind of organizational requirements from the motivational requirements and distributional. So I 
this was actually in a footnote to the paper, and I, I treated this as something that was self-evident, and he said, this sounds like a, an absurd idea. How could you possibly have a market and have equal income? And I said, well, you do this, that, and the other. And he said, well, that still seems implausible, but it does seem interesting, so why don't you pursue that? And that's how I got my dissertation topic. But then the challenge was to figure out how to construct that, how to think about that, and how to make an argument. So I kind of, this was a case where I knew what I wanted to argue, which was that you, you can combine the organizational advantages of the market with the distributional aspirations of equality, of an egalitarian commitment, which is not just is equal income but also collective uh, provision for various needs and so on. So then I had to figure out how to, and that took a long time because there was no model, there was no particular image that I had for how to think about a problem like that. I had a kind of vision of a social order that I wanted to portray as a good way to organize things, and I kind of ide recognized it as an idealistic, not a, not a blueprint for action, but a way of thinking constructively about alternatives. And uh, so it took me a long time to write my dissertation. I spent eight years on this. But eventually I came up with this way of thinking about that, and I finished the dissertation and published it shortly afterwards as a book. That was my first book. It was called Equality, Moral Incentives, and the Market, how you can have all the advantages of the market but motivate people through moral incentives rather than money and then uh, arrange, rather than paying them different amounts of money as income, and then you could distribute it according to the principles that you had, which were egalitarian, roughly speaking. So, so then I was done with that project, and I had to come up with a new project. And, and, uh, I, and again, it was an accident of circumstances. I, had, I was invited to go to a seminar, a uh, faculty seminar. I was teaching at a small liberal arts college, so in the United States there were a lot of these you know, after high school, people go to college, what's called college, which is the undergraduate education, and, and they're often small. I was teaching at a place that had six faculty members in political science, so I was teaching also American politics and public administration. And I had been invited, and they had a faculty seminar for people in this, these kinds of uh, uh, colleges, uh, the American Political Science Association, where we are, as I'm talking with you. And, uh, but the price of admission to this faculty seminar uh, was that uh, you had to write a paper on some topic. This was a faculty seminar on citizenship. So we'd do some readings in common in the first meeting, and then for the second meeting people would present papers. So I had to come up with something that said it. And I had not really thought about citizenship at all, but it sounded like fun to go to this seminar, so I had to come up with a topic, and I decided I would write about... And the, So this was the time, this was, I think, 1979, 80, somewhere in there, there was uh, the first Haitian refugee crisis. So people were fleeing Haiti and coming to the United States, and they were being interdicted by the Americans and taken to Guantanamo. This was the first use of Guantanamo, was to uh, house these uh, Haitian refugees whose refugee status was... They were being prevented because if they arrived on American soil, then there was a whole process they had to go through. So this was an attempt to prevent them. So this has echoes today, right, with the attempt to prevent the people who are fleeing desperate circumstances from coming. So I wanted to think about this. Uh, you know, it seemed on the one hand this was unreasonable. They were fleeing both horrible economic circumstances but also horrible political circumstances. There was a dictatorship, there was oppression. And uh, on the other hand, it wasn't clear that the Haitians were facing anything worse than uh, millions and millions of people in other countries as well. So if they take the Haitians, why not all these other millions? And then what happens to the people in I was thinking, I was living and thinking from an American perspective, what happens to the rest of the people in the United States? And in particular, because this was a time when 
we still had the notion that people cared about what happened to those at the bottom and who were concerned about what would happen to the poor in America. Uh, that was, again, a moment when that seemed as though something that people would care about. Uh, so how to think about the, you know, tensions and trade-offs. I just thought, well, I should think about this. So that's how I got the topic. And then I went about doing what one does when one has a topic. Is I said, I'll, well, I'll go read the literature. What have people said about this before? And what do I think about what people have said? And I discovered to my surprise that there was no literature. So once again, I found a topic for which I had no models. That was, this, is not, this is not a good strategy. I do not recommend this to people. Um, so, so then I decided that what I would do this was a little more contained than my dissertation, so that was good. I said, well, all right, nobody's written about it. This was, turned out not to be quite true. This was pre-internet, pre-Google, so later I did discover there had been some things written, which I couldn't dis discover immediately, but anyway, I didn't find anything. And so I said, well, what I'll do is uh, I'll uh, see what the dominant theories of the day, what they would have to say about this topic had these theorists turned their mind to the problem of immigration. So there's John Rawls, of course. His book had then been out for several years. Uh, so I thought I'd see what the Rawls's theory of justice would imply for this. And and then Robert Nozick, this, he was a prominent libertarian. Some people recognize his name. So see what he had to say. And then the other kind of dominant strain, not so associated with particular individuals, utilitarianism. What would that sort of approach imply for these kinds of questions about immigration? And uh, so I, I worked through that, and then I came up with this paper for this conference, and I, and I came to the conclusion that all three of those traditions of thought uh, should ultimately be basically for open borders. And that kind of surprised me. And in fact, for a while I was unsure whether this showed how what was wrong with the existing order of things or whether it showed what was wrong with these theories, <laughs> because they had come up with this so counterintuitive uh, conclusion. Maybe it just said something was wrong with political philosophy and the way it was constructed that it leads it to, lead to this absurd conclusion. But in the end, I thought, no, actually, they're right. You know, that I, I became firmly convinced that this was uh, the morally correct position, that there were deep reasons for these moral principles and for the connection between this conclusion and these uh, moral principles. And, and uh, so, and I eventually uh, published that, and subsequently I revised it a bit. By the time I was doing the revisions, Michael Walzer had come out with an essay, on, uh, so he was defending closure, and so that gave me a kind of target to say why I wasn't persuaded by his view, even though I admire Walzer enormously. And then I wrote this up as an article, which I sent out to be published, where it was promptly rejected by the first three places I sent it, but was eventually accepted and uh, published. So that was... And that, of all the things I've ever written, is the thing that most people know of. That's the most famous, certainly the thing that I'm best well known for. Uh, so then, I didn't know. I didn't really plan to do anything else on immigration. I thought I would go back to the things related to markets and justice, but I started on a few topics there, and you know, they just didn't quite ever gel. I never found the right frame question that something engaged me. I tried to think about different questions I can't even now remember very clearly. I never quite found the right... So that was a kind of time of difficulty of finding a way to figure out what I wanted to talk about. Uh, so then I returned to the immigration topics, just for various reasons in various ways. At one point I got an invitation as a result of Michael Walzer. He'd been invited and he didn't want to go, and but he suggested my name, to a conference organized by the German Marshall Fund. This is in the 
late 80s, and they were concerned with the problem of access to citizenship for the immigrants, mainly the children and now grandchildren of the Turkish immigrants, mainly Turkish, other countries as well, who would come in the 1950s as guest workers, but now, so 30 years later, they hadn't left, they'd had kids, the kids had grown up in Germany and spoke German, they were, but they weren't German citizens and, uh, for the most part. So there was a whole question about, well, what do we think about this, what should be done about this? So they were having a, a seminar on access to citizenship. Most of the people were lawyers or social scientists, but they had a couple of, uh, I was really the main person who was political theory. There was also Kai, ha Kai Halbrunner, who was, a, who was a prominent legal scholar in Germany who who was kind of cautious. So, But anyway, I made the argument, which was actually Michael Walter's argument. So here was a case where, although I disagreed with him on open borders, I agreed completely with him about his argument that when you admit people to live in your society, you have to admit them to citizenship over time. You know, it's one thing if they're there for a few years, but over time, you can't have people within a democracy who are not admitted to citizenship. And that was the heart of the argument, and I tried to, you know, then spell that out more fully and in a different way, but really it was borrowing from Walter's uh, argument. So that got me into another set of questions, and one of the things that was interesting about that, and that's why I say, so I could see that when I made that argument about access to citizenship, it didn't depend on whether you were for open borders or not. So Walter was against open borders, I was for open borders, but we had exactly the same views on access to citizenship. So that was instructive to me about how to think about problems that you can't, can't think that everything is connected to everything else and it always has to be through a single filter. There have to be ways of separating out the problems and working within certain kinds of constraints, intellectual and conceptual, as you address certain kinds of problems. So that was kind of helpful over the long run and that's really what started me on my uh, work on immigration. And, and then I, uh, around the same time, I moved to Canada. And that was an interesting experience because Canada is very different from the United States. So I had grown up in the United States uh, and had lived there my whole life. And now in Canada, one of the ways Canada is different from the United States has to do with the, the way in which issues of collective identity are right on the table because there's the whole issue of Quebec and its status within Canada and Aboriginal indigenous people are much more prominent in Canada. They're still marginalized, but compared to the United States, they are a visible presence in their identity is an issue and how the state should respond to them is an issue. So these questions about whether or not there should be some different way of engaging with questions of identity and culture and collective forms of organization that just are not the state-citizen relationship, that, that became on the table for me. So I started thinking about those things as well. And, and related to that, one of the things that had been troubling to me about the open borders argument is it seems very individualistic. It's, you know, it starts from a commitment to moral equality, everyone's a human being, everyone's entitled to the same treatment, so, so then there's this highly individualistic quality to that, and I thought, so one of the things I say to my students and I try to take seriously myself is when you make an argument, you want to think about the strongest objections that can be made to that argument and take them seriously and try to find them in their strongest form, not their weakest form, and and engage with those. And so being in Canada partly I could really see the pull of collective identity and how did that fit with this highly individualistic mode and so then I wanted to find examples and cases where claims of the collective and the existing identity might pose challenges to the idea of just having open borders. Because the, the original open borders argument had mainly been about money, that is to say it's a way of the rich states protecting their privileges and keeping out the poor. Which I think is still true, I do think that's true. But now there are questions of culture and identity which aren't just necessarily about money, 
And so then trying to think, well, how does that affect this idea that people should be free to move wherever they want to? Should people, what about indigenous communities trying to preserve a way of life? Should people be able to move in there? And well, no, I didn't think that was quite the same kind of claim. So I wanted to think through those sorts of problems, and that's what I did for some time in various ways. Uh, I, I wrote a book uh, called Culture, Citizenship, and Community, which is about multiculturalism, basically, and tries to think through in, in, with specific references to real cases about these challenges of culture and identity. I wrote something there about, uh, uh, with a colleague, Melissa Williams, about uh, Islamic immigrants uh, and the, their kinds of claims and how society should adjust to them or how they should adjust to the societies when they move in and what are the, uh, those kinds of questions. Uh, and a variety of uh, related topics. There was something on Quebec, there were uh, other kinds of uh, discussions as well. There was stuff on indigenous uh, people and their relation to Canada and citizenship and so on. And so then, uh, then I, and, and at the same time I continued to work on the immigration questions and then I, as I, I just worked on that for the next, uh, having finished the first book, I thought, I thought I would be done with the immigration book a year or two later, but it actually took me another 15, not quite 15, 13 years to to finish the uh, the immigration book because I kept thinking about new dimensions to the problem and having to sort out, for example, I, one thing I had not thought about at all from the outset was the question about, but which is a very important problem in the United States in particular, but also in Europe and uh, and to some degree in Canada, is people who arrive and settle without authorization. So, of course, if you have open borders, there's no authorization required, so that problem disappears. But really, that's a real problem that people are confronting as a real problem. So, so you have to bracket the open borders question to think about that. And, and uh, I wanted to kind of work through what are their claims, how should states respond to those. Is, do we say, well, they came without authorization, that's the end of it? Well, you, actually, you don't think that because they have human rights. You can't shoot them, you know. The, the, well, what are the kinds of rights that they ought to have? And, and how can... And, and they have these formal rights, but the rights are ineffective because if they're discovered, they could be kicked out. So then, is, it, is that what we want, to have just these technical formal rights, which we don't really... So then, okay, if you're going to provide them with real rights, how could you do that? And I try to work through those kinds of questions, including, finally, the question of whether their irregular status should be regularized at some point. Uh, and that's, so I had a, a long discussion of that. And similarly, with the problem of refugees, again... Problem of refugees disappears if you have open borders. Open borders, you want to go, you know, like where you are, you go to someplace else, right? So, so, but what if you're in the real world, you don't have open borders? Now, okay, what are the claims of refugees? How do they resemble or differ the claims of other people who are trying to immigrate? And what does it take? And is that a, is that, can we accept even if you assume that states normally control immigration, do they have some special responsibility to refugees, which is different, which isn't just a matter of their discretion, but they have an obligation how would you specify that obligation, what are its limits, and what are its characteristics. So again, I spent a lot of time working through the problem of, of uh, refugees and, and eventually published this book on the ethics of immigration. So that's sort of where I am. That was a couple of years ago, uh, where I am today, and now I'm hoping to turn back eventually to the question of markets and justice, but in a broader perspective. Brought to you by democracynet.eu